0: Welcome to the Beacon Church podcast. Each week, we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. So great to be with you this morning. Well, I'm excited to visit a story in the book of Genesis this morning with everyone. It's a story about the wilderness. Um, about the perceived shelf of life uh, and how God meets us on that shelf. In my house, uh, there is this one shelf, and if we put something on that shelf, chances are we'll see it for a couple of years. It just gets forgotten. And uh, some of us may be feeling like that this morning, that especially in the wake of all that's happened in the last two years, some of us find ourselves in a kind of wilderness. And by the word wilderness, I mean a place where we might find ourselves that's supremely uncomfortable and unexpected, and maybe most of all, a place where you feel unseen and invisible even to God. I've walked through a, a few wilderness seasons in my life and a recent one that's still so fresh and vivid in my memory Uh, was back in 2015 when my brother John and I uh, decided to dive into the deep end of opening our very first restaurant. Yes, I went from church planning to opening restaurants. And uh, not a traditional career move, but this idea grabbed hold of us um, as we talked about the value of hospitality. And so as this idea turned into reality, we felt God's wind to our back. It was like every single door was opening. We didn't even have to push. We were just given such clear direction and vision and confirmation again and again for this venture and funding came in just in a matter of months. Hundreds of thousands of dollars from people we didn't even ask. And so this to two guys who had never run a business before, let alone a restaurant, it just felt like this was God's promise to us. And that's how it went for a little bit in the very beginning, until right before we opened in the fall of 2015. We started hitting some real speed bumps. It started when we realized that due to an engineer's mistake that we wouldn't have gas for cooking or for heating. And so that we would have to open without any kind of cooking whatsoever and uh, in a frigid space. And so we decided that we were gonna start serving raw fish because you know, no gas, no cooking. And uh, turns out it wasn't the best idea, but we went for it. No other choice. And so month one comes and goes, and it's crickets. As slow as can be, and we are hemorrhaging money. Month two comes, same thing. Month three, same thing. And we were so slow. I remember John and I would be sitting in the basement because there were no customers in the space, And we would sit there, stare at each other, and try to remind each other of the faithfulness that we had encountered up to that point. And we would pray and try to encourage each other. But really, the entire time, what I was thinking in my mind was, God, where are you? Where are you? He all of a sudden seemed so far away. Of course, looking back now, we always have 2020, and many in this room know that, in these kinds of very difficult seasons, we can gain so much. And it's because in the wilderness, as it so often happens, we have the potential to change. ourselves. And we're going to see today. Sorry. We switch out packs okay, here. great. Thank you for your patience. How's that sound? Good? Let's give it up for Trevor. Yeah, Trevor. Thank you, Trevor. We're going to see today that the wilderness is a necessary season that God uses to prepare us to walk in our destiny in greater measure. Let me read that again for us. The wilderness is a necessary season that God uses to prepare us to walk in our destiny in greater measure. And we're going to get to the wilderness in a moment. But let me just say one word about this word destiny because it means different things to different people. And so today when I say the word destiny, I mean the ways in which God wants to partner with us in this life. And so another word for it might be assignment or ministry so destiny equals assignment for just for today's purposes. And so whether you're single or married, whether you're a parent or a pastor or a mechanic or a mentor or an athlete or coach, any combination thereof, we all have our earthly assignments slash ministries slash destiny. So I just wanted to make that clear before we uh, jump in here. Now that we have a common definition for destiny, Let's enter into the story of the wilderness and how God uses the wilderness in our lives and for our destiny. This is the story of Hagar. Who is Hagar? Well, it says in our text that she was an Egyptian servant to Sarah, Abraham's wife. And Sarah and Abraham, if you know, they're the mother and father of the people of God, the people of Israel. And at this point in the story where we pick up, Sarah and Abraham have been waiting 10 years for a promise from God to come to pass. They've been waiting 10 years for what? Anyone know? For a child, exactly. For a natural born heir who was to be the seed to a great nation, according to God. But it's been 10 years and nothing, and Sarah starts to believe that God is actively preventing her. If you read the text, she believes God is actively preventing her from becoming pregnant. So she decides to take things into her own hands. And here's her backup plan. She was going to take Hagar, her maidservant, and give her to Abraham as a surrogate. And apparently back then in that culture, this was not out of the norm. And so Abraham agrees to this backup plan. He marries her, impregnates her, and now Hagar all of a sudden is pregnant with child. And as soon as this happens, the text says, the passage says, that Hagar started to look at Sarah with contempt in her eyes. A more accurate or or, or, or clearer understanding of the Hebrew there, it says that Sarah literally became small in Hagar's eyes. And when uh, Sarah sees this and experiences this from Hagar, she's not having it. She goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, look what's happening Do something about it. And Abraham says to Sarah, She's your maidservant. You do something about it. And she does. She starts to abuse and mistreat Hagar, and Hagar goes running into the wilderness, humiliated. And that's the recap. And we're going to pick up now, starting in verse 7 of Genesis 16 in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, that is, by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to shore. And so this tells us right away that Hagar is probably, most likely, on her way back to Egypt. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Royi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael." So Hagar is in the wilderness. But why? Why is anyone ever led into the wilderness? Well, in Deuteronomy 8.2, Moses reminds the people of Israel in the desert Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness there for 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Why are we led into the wilderness? For God to humble us and to test us. Now the word test may evoke some negative feelings in this room right now, but they're not always Bad, right? We, we're, we're thankful for tests anytime we get on the road because, you know, we, we assume that most people on the road have passed their road test. You know, most. God leads us into the wilderness to be humbled and to face tests to know what is in us, specifically our hearts. And we see this again and again. And again, in the Bible, and it goes something like this. It's a common pattern. You, you, Something good happens to you. Something really positive happens. And right after that, you're in the fire of the wilderness. And the facets of your character and the stuff of your heart get surfaced as you're tested. And from the fire of the wilderness and the test within emerges a transformed and encouraged person who is able to walk in their destiny in greater measure, right? Good, fire of the wilderness, encouraged and able to walk in their destiny in greater measure. So just some examples. Joseph, right, um, the prince of Egypt, he received a many-color coat from his dad, right, which signified that he had the bulk of the inheritance. So he was going to get all the money from dad, but, which is good for Joseph, but not good for who? His brothers, so the very next thing that happens after they find out about it is he gets sold into slavery by his jealous brothers and he's in prison or in slavery for 13 years. Tested throughout and then comes out second in charge of the land. We have Israel liberated from 400 years of slavery. Very good. They're out right into the wilderness, tested for 40 years And after being tested, they take the land. King David, as a young man, is told by a great prophet, the prophet Samuel, David, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Get ready. Good thing, right? Gets taken to uh, the, the equivalent of the White House, to Saul's palace. And there ministers to Saul personally. Another really good thing. But as soon as that is over, he gets chased in the wilderness for 14 years fearing for his life, being tested throughout, and then becomes king. And finally, Jesus comes on the scene. He's baptized, like today. Beautiful. He hears a voice. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Right? Good. Really good. As good as you can get. Where does he go right after that? Into the wilderness, tested for 40 days. And out of the wilderness he comes, ministering in power, healing and delivering people and in our passage today we see this egyptian maidservant she marries into a wealthy family though it wasn't her choice but she becomes pregnant and that all but secures her place in the world and that's evidenced by the way that she looks down on sarah so in one sense it's a good thing but then we find her now in the wilderness and the question i want to ask is where is her test where is Hagar's test? Go with me to verse 8 here. Text says, And he, the angel of the Lord, said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? By the way, God's questions are always so revealing. And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. Notice she answers the first question, but not the second. So she's most likely on her backup plan to Egypt. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And there it is. God says to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And before we go any further, I just want to, I feel like I have to give this quick caveat. This is not implicit approval to return to abusive relationships. This is a singular story and the context here matters deeply. And so please don't hear it like that. But however you look at it, however you slice this test up, it's not easy what God is asking Hagar to do. He's saying, go back to the place where you were humiliated. And the question is, does she pass? Does she pass this test? And we read in verse 15 that she does. She goes back and she submits and she bears a child, Ishmael. Hagar passes her test. And the passage reveals to us the how. That a real transformation has taken place in Hagar while in the wilderness. And beloved, if you are in the wilderness today, or there, uh, uh, or have been there for a while, and wonder why God is leading you into these places, I encourage you to lean in now. You see, from the very beginning of this chapter, Sarah And Abraham have only referred to Hagar as a servant or as her over there. In other words, in their eyes, Hagar is more a means to an end than a person. But when the angel of the Lord greets her, he calls her by name. He says, Hagar, servant of Sarai. And this is the very first time in this entire passage where. Someone actually calls Hagar, Hagar. You see, she's a woman. She's a servant. And she's Egyptian, so she's a foreigner. In other words, she's as invisible as you can be in this particular culture and time. And it's no wonder they don't refer to her by name. She's little more to them than utility. She's a silhouette of a person. But there in the wilderness, unseen, invisible, without hope, she has an encounter. In the wilderness, God meets her and he says, Hagar, that's your name. And you work as a servant for Sarai, that's how you live. I believe God is saying to her in this moment, I know who you are and I see you. And not only for who you are, but I know your story. Because he affirms her in verse 11 when he says, The Lord has listened to your affliction. So he knows what she's been going through. And then God gives her this amazing redemptive promise, right? That she'll have descendants too numerous to count all through the child in her womb. And so now, on top of that, she has a portion of her destiny. And when God commands uh, Hagar to go back to Sarah, she goes. But here's the thing, church. She's not going back the same as when she came out. Yeah, I mean, you can picture her walking that exact same path back, but she couldn't be in a more different place in her heart. It's different because she's now armed, armed with two things. The first is destiny. She knows her destiny. She's been given a promise. God promises her that the symbol of her pain, her very, her very pregnancy, will be redeemed as a child that will lead to many descendants. And it's reminiscent of God's promise to Abraham. It's a powerful, powerful promise and a powerful reason to return, if you think about it. But there's a second reason, a reason I believe that is so much more powerful and important, and it's this. She can go back because she knows now that she's seen, she has seen that the God of the universe knows her name. And it gives her tremendous confidence. And so verse 13 says, So she, Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, truly here, and where is here? In the wilderness, Truly here in the wilderness, I have seen him who looks after me. Mm. This is the very first time in all of scripture where someone names God. A foreign-born maidservant in the wilderness has the privilege to be the first to name God. She calls him El Royi. And in the Hebrew, it means the God who sees me. I just love this name. Beloved, here's the most exciting thing about the wilderness. I know it's weird to call the wilderness exciting, but it's true. It's exciting because it is where God reveals himself to us in fresh and surprising ways, only in the wilderness. Because in the wilderness, humbled, we are hungry and thirsty, And I'm in food, you know, I I love to eat. But when I'm hungry and thirsty, I'll pretty much do anything, including pushing my own kids out of the way to get that first slice of pizza. You know what I mean? That's me. We begin to search for relief, for anything that will make this pain go away. And it could go one of two ways. One of the most natural responses you and I have to the wilderness is to get out as soon as we can. And so we'll, we'll manufacture escape routes, right? We'll uh, move to a new city. Or we'll, start new, we'll quit our job and start a new job. Or we'll jump into a new relationship. And it's drastic stuff. And often doing so is like heading back to Egypt Just like Hagar, we go because we know at least it'll be different and we'll probably get to eat, right? But that would be a tragic mistake and maybe even prolong our time in the wilderness, just like what happened in Israel after leaving 400 years of slavery to be in the wilderness. I don't know if you knew that. They were only supposed to be there for a little while, a couple years at most. And through their rebellion and grumbling and complaining and kicking and screaming and 40 years. So that's one way. What's the second way? The hunger and thirst can also lead us to seek diligently after God. To be open to his presence and his voice with a new desperation. And this is the very thing that God has led us into these places for. In the humbling, to hear his voice and to meet his eyes, to be under his loving gaze and to discover that God, in Hagar's words, looks after me. Really, God, me? You see me. Our time in the wilderness can be surprisingly rich with discovering God. And then this weird thing happens. Our our destiny becomes less and less important in our hearts, while intimacy with God becomes our heart's desire. And we no longer ask him for what we want, but instead we find ourselves asking him, Lord, what, what do you want of me? A question born out of an ever-deepening trust for who God is and for his eyes, and that he sees us and that he wants the best for us. You know, notice Hagar doesn't resist what's being asked of her. It's a very difficult thing having to go back. And her response tells us that she's been moved in the very core of her being. The center of her trust has shifted. And it's almost like she couldn't help in that moment realizing what's happening. She couldn't help but name God in a moment of pure worship and praise. In the first few months of our restaurant's opening, when things were looking really bad, I remember the Lord asking me two things. He said, James, if the restaurant fails, will you thank me and will you love me? And just like he does with Hagar, the Lord uses questions to sift our hearts. And I wrestled with those questions because in all honesty, I'd secretly attached so much of myself to this venture my my worth my security to the success of this thing happening and you know we were massively in debt to investors and here we are about to see it all come crashing down and i remember so clearly one day uh, i woke up in the middle of the night anxious unable to catch my breath and and that's bad cuz i usually sleep like a dead person it's like a it's a it's a spiritual gift sleep for me and i realized i was having a panic attack Well, I thought it was a panic because I'd never had one before. I'm literally trying to catch my breath. And I I remember I tried to pray, but I couldn't calm down. And then almost as if I didn't have a choice, I began to sing because I didn't know what else to do. A song that I had on repeat in that season. And I ask your forgiveness, your ears. uh, As I do this, I'll just sing a little bit. It goes, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Anyone know this song? Don't encourage me. All right, fine. (laughs) From my mother's womb. It's a good line. Listen to this. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Love has called my name. Isn't that beautiful? I sang it again and again and again. I started to realize if it does all come crashing down, I'm still his son. I'm still loved and cared for. He will love me no less, and I will still have a destiny in him. And there was a shift. It was gradual, but I started to see myself through his eyes and, and not my own. I could finally say, as weak a declaration as I was, I could finally say, Lord, if it does come crashing down, I will still thank you, and I will still love you. You know, the, the bonus gift I received that night was knowing that though it was weak, my love for him was real. He allowed me to see that, and that is such an encouragement to me. And I know some of us need to hear that today. Your love, even though it's weak, it's real. It matters to him. Beloved, in the wilderness we face tests. Tests come in all different shapes and sizes. And in order to pass the test, it requires that we put, we see ourselves the way God sees us. It's like putting on a new pair of glasses. And another word for this act of putting on new eyes is repentance. Repentance is essentially agreement with how God sees you. That when He looks on you at this very moment, He is delighted with you. That 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 even in your weakness, he loves you. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and because the Father looked away from the Son in the moment of his greatest test. He can now look on us as righteous and pure and delightful as those who trust in Jesus' sacrifice. This fatherly, intimate gaze, it gives me, it gives you the confidence to continue to trust in him, wait on him, obey him, even when it is hard. When it is most difficult. Beloved, if you're in the wilderness today, you have reason to rejoice. You are not here by accident. You've been led here. And even if it is because of your own rebellious choices, God is using it. He is using this time in your life. If we were to take any cues from scripture, Scripture's wilderness stories, you can know that as you walk this difficult season, He is actively Right now, setting the table for you to feast. So let me ask you, what kind of tests are you facing today? Are there questions God is asking you today? Maybe you're being overlooked at work and it's been really hard, but you have an opportunity to mentor some younger kids and care for people under you. No guarantee of promotion or reward, but you, you, you sense that, That he's leading you to be generous and to be his light even when you're being unfairly overlooked at work or maybe you've been deeply offended by someone in your family and they keep coming up in your heart as you pray you want to forget about them they keep coming up up and you sense a leading to pray for them and to even bless them and you're thinking but Lord do you know what he did to me do you know how he's being to me and yet the leading will not leave your heart will you bless him Will you pray for him? Just a couple of weeks after my panic attack, we get a phone call in the restaurant. I'm in the basement prepping something, and my brother John comes running down with the phone. He sticks it in my face. Hey, it's the New York Times. And then he runs back upstairs. (laughs) I'm like, what? This is weird. What is this, some kind of prank? Hello? Turns out it was the New York Times. It was LaGaya Michon, she's a restaurant reviewer for The Times, and uh, she was asking, calling to ask if they could send a photographer to take some photos for a review of our restaurant that would be coming out in a week. And I think my exact words were, excuse me? You mean you've already visited the restaurant? And her answer was yes. And I'll never forget it, right before she hangs up, she just casually mentions, oh, and by the way, uh, the review says that you have the best Hawaiian poke in the city. Click. The review comes out. It's glowing, absolutely glowing. And the next several months was a blur because I can't remember it because literally we could not serve food fast enough. We had lines out the door for a few years. It was amazing. That was the beginning of 2016. Fast forward. To last year, 2021, we're 14 months into COVID, and we're hanging by a thread. Mostly serving the front lines with your help, help of some of your members here. By the way, guys, Beacon Church is incredibly generous. I just, I just love you guys for for the the generous hearts that you carry here. So thank you. Um, We're serving the front lines with one restaurant, and the other restaurant is that we've we've opened a second one by now. Second one is closed temporarily. Both happen to be in office districts, one in Midtown, one in the Fidei in Manhattan. And so when your business is 70% dependent on the office population and they're not there anymore, it doesn't work very well. To make a very long story short, after months of failed lease negotiations, legal proceedings with landlords, and the whole nine yards, we finally decide to shut it all down. And I'm just heartbroken. This was our livelihood. So we begin the painful process of shutting things down. Who knew that closing a restaurant would be almost as much work as opening one? Part of the process, if you choose to go this route, is you, you try to sell off as much of the equipment and fixtures as possible. And so because it was the pandemic, uh, we put it all up online and people would bid and, 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 so, and they would win it that way. And now it's a couple weeks later, it's the last day of operations at a restaurant. And the people who won their bids are coming in to pick up all the equipment. Everything is going out the door. Literally everything is going out the door. And I'm there, half in disbelief, half just trying to help the right people take the right things. Well, these two guys come in. We'll just call them Frankie and Vinny. Frankie owns a cigar shop in the Bronx. And Vinny is his friend who is just helping, up, helping him out because he owns a truck. And they are straight from Central Casting. And Frankie bought all our tables, which my wife, Carol, and I painstakingly designed and had custom made for hundreds of dollars each. I think he paid 19 And I'm literally holding the front door open for them as these tables are leaving the shop. But they're not having the easiest time. And Frankie, the cigar shop owner, starts laying into Vinny for not pulling his weight. But like in the, you know, in, in the we've been best friends forever kind of way. But Vinny's not having it, so he gives it right back, and he's like complaining about all the pain he's in and how can you push me so hard? You keep bringing me to these things. Here's the thing. Whenever I hear someone is in pain or dealing with some kind of health issue, I will usually ask if I could pray for them right there and then, especially people I don't know because if they're not healed, I won't see them again, you know, and so it's okay. (laughs) Don't blame me. So here's Vinny complaining about pain. But I'm not really in the mood to pray for someone who's having my tables for $19. You know what I mean? Not today, Lord. Of all days, not today. But just like that, I hear my spirit has to pray for him. So I don't ask him. What I do say is, are you really in pain right now? And he looks at me and he says, oh, yeah. And he's like dying to tell me the story. He's like, I used to be a crane operator and I was in the cab and I fell out and I fell eight feet down, hitting things on the way down. And he wakes up in the hospital in traction. He's like, I have metal in my hip, in my back, my legs. I'm in constant pain. And he shows me like to get in and out of the truck, he has to like lift his leg like this, just to get in and out. And I'm like, wow. Okay. And I ask him, hey, I don't know if you believe in prayer, but can I pray for you and for your pain? And this was his response. He looks me dead in the eyes and he says, oh yeah, I believe in that stuff. (laughs) I might have laughed out loud, but I don't remember. And so I ask if I could lay my hands on him, and he says, sure. And So I I lay my hands on him, and Frankie, meanwhile, poor Frankie, he's just standing there like, he's like, you know, this is just an interruption to his day, and so I lay my hands on Vinny's shoulder, and I pray the most simple 15-second prayer. Really, guys, nothing like, I mean, I used to be a pastor, so I can pray it up pretty good, but this was like just very vanilla, and, um, but earnest, but, but vanilla. And So we open our eyes, and he thanks me, and then we just all go back to doing what we're doing. Tables are being moved out, and, and that's that. And usually, you know, when I pray for someone, we go our separate ways. That I don't hear about what happens if they've been healed or feel better or but 30 minutes later, they're still in the restaurant because they're still collecting fixtures and, 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 and equipment. All of a sudden, I'm standing there. I feel this tap on my shoulder. I turn around, and it's Vinny. And he's got this wide-eyed look on his face. And I'm like, hey. And he looks at me and he says, um, I don't know what's going on, but I haven't felt this good in years. He says, "Look, I've got goosebumps," and he goes like this. He shows me his arms, and sure enough, covered in goosebumps. And now I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> Maybe you are too, but <clears throat> and and uh, and I say, "What's going on?" And he says, "I don't know, but I feel really good." And he's got this tr- tr- tremble in his voice. And then I say, "You know," I ask him, Vinny I don't know." You want to try to do something that you haven't been able to do since the accident? He looks at me and says, I was thinking just that. And his response was, I haven't touched my feet in eight years. And I'm like, what? He explains that his wife and his daughter have to put on and take off his shoes every morning and every evening because he cannot bend down far enough to remove his shoes. I say, do you want to try it now? And he says, yes. And you have to understand, this is risky. You know, Frankie's standing there. I'm standing there. You know, what if he fails? What if he hurts himself? The embarrassment. But he goes for it. And slowly, he reaches down. Not only does he touch his feet, he grabs them. And he looks up at me, and he just starts weeping. And he says, you don't understand, you don't understand, my daughter is going to flip out. And he's crying, and I'm crying, and poor Frankie's just standing there, mouth open. And he looks at Vinny, and then he looks at me, and he says, we're taking you to all the auctions. And I'm like, that is such a Frankie thing to say. And uh, anyway, I say to Vinny, Vinny, through tears, I'm like, God sees you, he sees you. And he loves you. He's healing you, man. And um, he talked for a little bit. He asked for my number, and he actually calls me two weeks later. And he says, my life, I have my life back. He says, that pain has disappeared almost completely. And he's telling me, he's telling everyone he can about it. And that he wants to go back to church. He used to go, and he wants to go back. I'm so happy for Vinny, but can I tell you something, church? I feel like that healing was for me. Because God, in the midst of the literal garage sale of my livelihood, revealed himself. It was for me like a little tap on the shoulder that's like him saying, hey, James, hey, little guy. I haven't forgotten about you. I see you. I'm here. I love you. And church, I had to repent. I began to repent of the offense in my heart for the lies I was believing and tempted to believe about it all that he had left us or that we had done something wrong and that we were being punished. Beloved, if you're in the wilderness today, let this be encouragement to you. He sees you. You are here because he wants you you to walk confidently into the next season of your life with the knowledge that where you go is nowhere near as important as the fact that his loving gaze is on you, that he's delighting in you right now, enjoying you and leading you, that if you seek him, and that if you seek him in this place, he will reveal himself to you in fresh and surprising ways. I invite you to pray with me. just want to give us an opportunity to ask God to reveal Himself to us, even now. And certainly throughout this week, this season, especially for those of you who are in the wilderness, you have the permission right now to ask, which is Jesus' instruction to us. He says, Ask, you shall receive. So, what, with what faith you have today, tell Him where you are, what you're feeling. And ask him to reveal himself, to give you a touch, a sign, a word, a need met. And then ask him to show you how he sees you. Let his gaze fill your eyes. Father, reveal yourself. Show us how you feel about us. Abba, here we are. Touch your beloved. Be near to those of us who are brokenhearted, afraid, frustrated, and feeling unseen. Give us the confidence that you yearn to impart to us, the confidence that comes from being seen by your loving eyes. God, you're so good. Thank you for meeting us in this place. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.